Section C of Liber Amoris or the New Pygmalion by William Hazlitt from Part Two, Letter Nine to Letter the Last. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Nick Duncan Liber Amoris by William Hazlitt Part 2, Letter 9 Letter 9 My dear P, you've been very kind to me in this business, but I fear even your indulgence for my infirmities is beginning to fail. To what a state am I reduced, and for what? For fancying an artful little vixen to be an angel and a saint, because she affected to look like one, to hide her rank thoughts and deadly purposes. Has she not murdered me under the mask of the tenderest friendship? And why? Because I have loved her with an unutterable love, and sought to make her my wife. You say that it's my own outrageous conduct that has estranged her. Nay, I have been too gentle with her. I ask you first in candour whether the ambiguity of her behaviour with respect to me, sitting and fondling a man, circumstance as I was, sometimes for half a day together, and then declaring she had no love for him beyond a common regard, and professing never to marry, was not enough to excite my suspicions, which the different exposures from the conversations below stairs were not calculated to allay. I ask you what you yourself would have felt or done, if loving her as I did, you had heard what I did time after time. Did not her mother own to one of the grossest charges, which I shall not repeat, and is such indelicacy to be reconciled with her pretended character, brackets, that character with which I fell in love, and to which I made love, close brackets, without supposing her to be the greatest hypocrite in the world? My unpardonable offence has been that I took her at her word, and was willing to believe her the precise little puritanical person she set up for, after exciting her wayward desires by the fondest embraces and purest kisses, as if she had been made my wedded wife Estreen, or was to become so to-morrow, brackets, for that was always my feeling with respect to her, close brackets. I didn't proceed to gratify them, or to follow up my advantage by any action which should declare, I think you a common adventurer and will see whether you are so or not. Yet any one but a credulous fool like me would have made the experiment, with whatever violence to himself, as a matter of life and death. For I had every reason to distrust appearances. Her conduct has been of a piece from the beginning. In the midst of her closest and falsest endearments, she has always, brackets, with one or two exceptions, brackets, disclaimed the natural inference to be drawn from them, and made a verbal reservation by which she might lead me on in a fool's paradise, and make me the tool of her levity, her avarice, her love of intrigue as long as she liked, and dismiss me whenever it suited her. This, you see, she has done, because my intentions grew serious, and if complied with, would deprive her of the pleasures of a single life. Offer marriage to this tradesman's daughter, who has as nice a sense of honour as any one can have, 
and like Lady Bellaston in Tom Jones, she cuts you immediately in a fit of abhorrence and alarm. Yet she seemed to be of a different mind formerly, when struggling from me in the height of her first intimacy. She exclaimed, However I might agree to my own ruin, I will never consent to bring disgrace upon my family. That I should have spared that traitress after expressions like these astonishes me when I look back on it. Yet if I were to do it all over again, I know I should act just the same part. Such is her power over me. I cannot run the least risk of offending her. I love her so. When I look in her face, I cannot doubt her truth. Wretched being that I am, I have thrown away my heart and soul upon an unfeeling girl, and my life, brackets, that might have been so happy had she been what I thought her, brackets, will soon follow either voluntarily or by force of grief, remorse and disappointment. I cannot get rid of the reflection for an instant, nor even seek relief from its galling pressure. Ah, what a heart she has lost! All the love and affection of my whole life was centred in her, who alone, I thought, of all women had found out my true character, and knew how to value my tenderness. Alas! Alas! that this, the only hope, joy, comfort I ever had, should turn to a mockery, and hang like an ugly film over the remainder of my days. I was in Roslyn Castle yesterday. It lies low in a rude but sheltered valley, hid from the vulgar gaze, and powerfully reminds one of the old song. The straggling fragments of the russet ruins, suspended, smiling and gracefully in the air, as if they would linger out another century to please the curious beholder. The green larch trees, trembling between with the blue sky and the white silver clouds, the wild mountain plants, starting out here and there, the date of the year on an old low doorway, but still more, the beds of flowers in orderly decay, that seemed to have no hand to tend them, but keep up a sort of traditional remembrance of civilization in former ages, present altogether a delightful and amiable subject for contemplation. The exquisite beauty of the scene, with the thought of what I should feel, should I ever be restored to her and have to lead her through such places as my adored, my angel-wife, almost drove me beside myself. For this picture, this ecstatic vision, what have I of late instead as this image of the reality? Demoniacal possessions. I see the young witch seated in another's lap, twinning her serpent arms around him, her eye glancing at her cheeks on fire. Why does not the hideous thought choke me? Or why do I not go and find out the truth at once? The moonlight streams over the silver waters. The bark is in the bay that might waft me to her, almost with a wish. The mountain breeze sighs out her name. Old ocean with a world of tears murmurs back my woes. Does not my heart yearn to be with her? And shall I not follow its bidding? No. I must wait till I am free. Then I will take my freedom, brackets, a glad prize, brackets, and lay it at her feet, and tell her my proud love of her that would not brook a rival in her dishonour, and that would have her all or none, and gain her or lose myself for ever. 
You see by this letter the way I am in, and I hope you will excuse it as the picture of a half-disordered mind. The least respite from my uneasiness, brackets, such as I had yesterday, brackets, only brings the contrary reflection back upon me like a flood, and by letting me see the happiness I have lost makes me feel by contrast more acutely what I am doomed to bear. Letter 10 Dear friend, here I am at St. B's once more, amid the scenes which I greeted in their barrenness in winter, which have now put on their full green attire that shows luxuriant to the eye, but speaks a tale of sadness to this heart widowed of its last, its dearest, its only hope. Oh, lovely bees in, here I composed a volume of law cases, here I wrote my enamoured follies to her, thinking her human, and that all below was not the fiends. Here I got two cold, sullen answers from the little witch, and here I was, and I was damned. I thought the revisiting the old haunts would have soothed me for a time, but it only brings back a sense of what I have suffered for her, and for her unkindness the more strongly, till I cannot endure the recollection. I eye the heavens in dumb despair, or vent my sorrows in the desert air. To the winds, to the waves, to the rocks I complain. You may suppose without effect. I fear I shall be obliged to return. I am tossed about, brackets, backwards and forwards, brackets, by my passion, so as to become ridiculous. I can now understand how it is that mad people never remain in the same place. They are moving on forever, from themselves. Do you know, you would have been delighted with the effect of the northern twilight in this romantic country, which, as I rode along last night, the hills and groves and herds of cattle were seen reposing in the grey dawn of midnight, as in the moonlight, without shadow. The whole wide canopy of heaven shed its reflex light upon them, like pure crystal mirror. No sharp points, no petty details, no hard contrasts. Every object was seen softened, yet distinct, in its simple outline and its nat and natural tones, transparent, with an inward light breathing its own mild luster. The landscape altogether was like an airy piece of mosaic work, or like one of Poussin's broad, massy landscapes, or Titian's lovely pastoral scenes. Is it not so that poets see nature, veiled to the sight, but revealed to the soul in visionary grace and grandeur? I confess the sight touched me, and might have removed all sadness except mine. So, brackets, I thought, brackets, the light of her celestial face once shone into my soul and wrapped, wrapped me in a heavenly trance. The sense I have of beauty raises me for a moment above myself, but depresses me more afterwards when I, re when I recollect how it is thrown away in vain admiration, and that it only makes me more susceptible of pain from the mortifications I meet with. Would I had never seen her! I might then not indeed have been happy, but at least I may have passed my life in peace and have sunk into forgetfulness without a pang. 
the noble scenery of this country mixes with my passion and refines, but does not relieve it. I was at Stirling Castle not long ago. It gave me no pleasure. The declivity seemed to be abrupt, not sublime. For in truth I didn't shrink back from it with terror. The weather-beaten towers were stiff and formal. The air was damp and chill. The river winded its dull, slimy way like a snake along the marshy grounds. And the dim, misty tops of Ben Ledi and the lovely highlands, brackets woven fantastically of thin air, brackets, mocked my embraces and tempted my longing eyes, like her, the sole queen and mistress of my thoughts. I never found my contemplations on this subject so subtle eyes, and at the same time so desponding as on that occasion. I wept myself almost blind, and I gazed at the broad golden sunset through my tears that fell in showers. As I trod the green mountain turf, oh, how I wished to be laid beneath it, in one grave, with her, that I might sleep with her in that cold bed, my hand in hers, my heart for ever still, while the worms should taste her sweet body, that I had never tasted. There was a time when I could bear solitude, but it is too much for me at present. Now I am no sooner left to myself than I am lost in infinite space, and look around me in vain for suppose or comfort. She was my stay, my hope. Without her hand to cling to, I stagger like an infant on the edge of a precipice. The universe without her is one wide, hollow abyss in which my harassed thoughts can find no resting place. I must break off here, for the hysterica passio comes upon me and threatens to unhinge my reason. Letter 11 My dear and good friend, I am afraid I trouble you with my querulous epistles. But this is probably the last. Tomorrow or the next day decides my fate with respect to the divorce, when I expect to be a free man. In vain. Was it not for her that, and to lay my own freedom at her feet that I consented to this step which has cost me infinite perplexity, and now to be discarded for the first pretender that came in her way? If so, I hardly think I can survive it. You who have been a favourite with women do not know what it is to be deprived of one's only hope and to have it turned to shame and disappointment. There is nothing in the world left that can afford me one drop of comfort. This I feel more and more. Everything to me is a mockery of pleasure, like her love. The breeze does not cool me. The blue sky doesn't cheer me. I gaze only on her face averted from me. Alas! The only face that was ever turned fondly to me. Why am I thus treated? because I wanted her to be mine for ever in love or friendship, and didn't push my gross familiarities as far as I might? Why can you not go on as we have done, and say nothing about the word forever? Was it not plain from this that she even then meditated an escape from me to some less sentimental lover? Do you allow anyone else to do so? I said to her once as I was toying with her. No, not now. 
was her answer. That is, because there was nobody else in the house to take freedom with her. I was very well as a stopgap, but I was to be nothing more. While the coast was clear, I had it all my own way. But the instant C came, she flung herself at his head in the most barefaced way, ran breathless up the stairs before him, blushed when his foot was heard, watched for him in the passage, and was sure to be in close conference with him when he went down again. It was then my mad proceedings commenced. No wonder. Had I not reason to be jealous of every appearance of familiarity with others, knowing how easy she had been with me at first, and that she only grew shy when I didn't take farther liberties? What is her character to rest upon but her attachment to me, which she now denies, not modestly, but impudently? Will you yourself say that she had all along no particular regard for me? She will not do as much or more with other more likely men? She has had, she says, enough of my conversation. So it could not be that. Ah, my friend, it was not to be supposed I should ever meet even with the outward demonstrations of regard from any woman but a common trader in the endearments of love. I have tasted the sweets of the well-practised illusion, and now feel the bitterness of knowing what a bliss I must ever be deprived of, intolerable conviction. Yet I might, I believe, have won her by other methods. But some demon held my hand. How indeed could I offer her the least insult when I worshipped her very footsteps, and even now pay her divine honours from my inmost heart? Whenever I think of her, abased and brutalised, as I have been by the Cicerone cup of kisses, of enchantments, of which I have drunk, unchoked, withered, dried up with chagrin, remorse, despair, from which I have not a moment's respite, day or night, I have always some horrid dream about her, and wake wondering, what is the matter? She is no longer the same to me as ever. I thought at least we should always remain dear friends, if nothing more. Did she not talk of coming to live with me only a day before I left her in the winter? But she's gone, I am abused, and my revenge must be to love her. Yet she knows that one line, one word, would save me, the cruel, heartless destroyer. I see nothing for it but madness. And as Friday brings a change, or unless she's willing to let me go back. You must know I wrote to her for that purpose, but it was a very quiet, sober letter, begging pardon and professing reform for the future and all that. What effect it will have I know not. I was forced to get out of the way of her answer till Friday came. Ever yours. To S.L. My dear Miss L., evil to them that evil think is an old saying, and I've found it a true one. I've ruined myself by my unjust suspicions of you. Your sweet friendship was the balm of my life, and I've lost it, I fear, forever, by one fault and folly after another. What would I give to be restored to the place in your esteem? 
which, you assured me, I held only a few months ago. Yet I was not contented, but did all I could to torment myself and harass you by endless doubts and jealousy. Can you not forget and forgive the past, and judge of me by my conduct in future? Can you not take all my follies in a lump and say, like a good, generous girl, well, I'll think no more of them. In a word, may I come back and try and behave better? A line to say so would be an additional favour to so many already received by your obliged friend and sincere well-wisher. Letter 12 To C.P. I've had no answer from her. I'm mad. I wish you to call on M. in confidence, to say I intend to make her an offer of my hand, and that I will write to her father to that effect the instant I am free, and ask him whether he thinks it will be to any purpose, and what he would advise me to do. Unaltered Love Love is not love that alteration finds. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. Shall I not love her for herself alone, in spite of fickleness and folly? To love her for her regard to me is not to love her, but myself. She has robbed me of herself. Shall she also rob me of my love of her? Did I not live on her smile? Is it less sweet because it is withdrawn from me? Did I not adore her every grace? Does she bend less enchantingly, because she has turned from me to another? Is my love then in the power of fortune, or her caprice? No. I will have it lasting as it is pure, and I will make a goddess of her, and build a temple to her in my heart and worship her on indestructible altars, and raise statues to her. And my homage will be unblemished as her unrivalled symmetry of form. And when that fails, the memory of it shall survive, and my bosom shall be, shall be proof to scorn, as hers has been to pity. And I will pursue her with an unrelenting love, and sue to be her slave, and tend her steps without notice and without reward, and serve her living, and mourn for her when dead. And thus my love will have shown itself superior to her hate, and I shall triumph, and then die. This is my idea of the only true and heroic love. Such is mine for her. Perfect love. Perfect love has this advantage in it, that it leaves the possessor of it nothing farther to desire. There is one object, brackets at least, brackets, in which the soul finds absolute content, for which it seeks to live, or dares to die. The heart has, as it were, filled up the moulds of the imagination. The truth of passion keeps pace with and outvies the extravagance of mere language. 
there are no words so fine, no flattery so soft, that there is not a sentiment beyond them, that it is impossible to express, at the bottom of the heart where the true love is. What idle sounds the common phrases, adorable creature, angel, divinity are! What a proud reflection it is to have a feeling answering to all of these, rooted in the breast, unalterable, unutterable, to which all other feelings are light and vain. Perfect love reposes on the object of its choice, like the halcyon on the wave, and the air of heaven is around it. From C. P. Esquire London, July 4th, 1822 I have seen M. Now, my dear H., let me entreat and adjure you to take what I have to tell you, for what it is worth, neither less nor more. In the first place, I have learned nothing decisive from him. This, as you will see at once, is, as far as it goes, good. I am either to hear from him, or see him again in a day or two. But I thought you would like to know what passed inconclusive as it was, so I write without delay, and in great haste to save a post. I found him frank, and even friendly in his manner to me, and in his views respecting you. I think he is sincerely sorry for your situation, and he feels the person who has placed you in that situation is not much less awkwardly situated herself and he professes that he would willingly do what he can for the good of both. But he sees great difficulties attending the affair, which he frankly professes to consider as an altogether unfortunate one. With respect to the marriage, he seems to see the most formidable objections to it on both sides. But yet he by no means decidedly says that it cannot, or that it ought not to take place. These, mind you, are his own feelings on the subject, but the most important point I learn from him is this, that he is not prepared to use his influence either way, that the rest of the family are of the same way of feeling, and that, in fact, the thing must and does entirely rest with herself. To learn this was, as you see, gaining a great point. When I then endeavoured to ascertain whether he knew anything decisive as to what are her views on the subject, I found that he did not. He has an opinion on the subject. He didn't scruple to tell me what it was, but he has no positive knowledge. In short, he believes from what he learns from herself, brackets, and he had purposely seen her on the subject in consequence of my application to him, brackets, that she is at present indisposed to the marriage. But he is not prepared to say positively that she will not consent to it. Now all this coming from him in the most frank and unaffected manner, and without any appearance of cant, caution, or reserve, I take to be the most important as it respects your views. Whatever they may be, and certainly much more favourable to them, brackets, I confess it, brackets, than I was prepared to expect, supposing them to remain as they were. In fact, as I said before, the affair rests entirely with herself. 
They are none of them disposed either to further the marriage, or to throw any insurmountable obstacles in the way of it. And what is more important than all, they are evidently by no means certain that she may not, at some future period, consent to it. Or they would, for her sake, as well as their own, let you know as much flatly, and put an end to the affair at once. Seeing in how frank and straightforward a manner he received what I had to say to him, and replied to it, I proceeded to ask him what were his views, and what were likely to be hers, brackets, in case she did not consent, brackets, as to whether you should return and live in the house. But I added, without waiting for an answer, that if she intended to persist in treating you as she had done for some time past, it would be worse than madness for you to think of returning. I added that in case you did return, all you would expect from her would be that she would treat you with civility and kindness, that she would continue to evince that friendly feeling toward you that she had done for a great length of time, etc. To this he said he could really give no decisive reply, but that he should be most happy if by any intervention of his he could conduce to your comfort. But he seemed to think that for you to return on any express understanding that she should behave to you in any particular manner would be to place her in a most awkward position. He went somewhat at length into this point, and talked very reasonably about it. The result, however, was that he would not throw any obstacles in the way of your return, or of her treating you as a friend, etc. Nor did it appear that he believed she would refuse to do so. And, finally, we parted on the understanding that he would see them on the subject, and ascertain what could be done for the comfort of all parties, though he was of the opinion if you could make up your mind to break off the acquaintance altogether, it would be the best plan of all. I am to hear from him again in a day or two. Well, what do you say to all of this? Can you turn it to anything but a good, comparative good? If you would know what I say to it, it is this. She is still to be won by wise and prudent conduct on your part. She was always to have been won by such. And if she is lost, it has been not, as you sometimes suppose, because you have not been carried by that unwise, may I not say unworthy conduct, still farther, but because you gave way to it at all. Of course I use the term wise and prudent with reference to your object. Whether the pursuit of that object is wise, only yourself can judge. I say she has all along to be won, and she is still to be won. And all that stands in the way of your views at this moment is your past conduct. They are all of them, every soul, frightened at you. They have seen enough of you to make them so. And they have doubtless heard ten times more than they have seen, or than anyone else has seen. They are all of them, including M, brackets, and particularly she herself, brackets, frightened out of their wits as to what might be your treatment of her if she were yours. And they dare not trust you. They will not trust you at present. I do not say that they will not trust you, or rather that she will, 
for it all depends on her, when you have gone through a probation, but I am sure that she will not trust you till you have. You will, I hope, not be angry with me, when I say she would be a fool if she did. If she were able to accept you at present, and without knowing more of you, even I should begin to suspect that she had an unworthy motive for doing it. Let me not forget to mention what is perhaps as important a point as any, as regards the marriage. I of course stated to M that when you are free, you are prepared to make her a formal offer of your hand. But I begged him, if he was certain that such an offer would be refused, to tell me so plainly at once, that I might endeavour in that case to dissuade you from subjecting yourself to the pain of such a refusal. He would not tell me that he was certain. He said his opinion was that you would not accept your offer, but still he seemed to think that there was no harm in making it. One word more, and a very important one. He once, and without my referring in the slightest manner to that part of the subject, spoke of her as a good girl, and likely to make any man an excellent wife. Do you think if she were a bad girl, brackets, and if she were, he must know her to be so, brackets, he would have dared to do this under these circumstances? And once, in speaking of his not being a fit person to set his face against marrying for love, he added, I did so myself and out of that house, and I have had reason to rejoice at it ever since. And mind, brackets, for I anticipate your cursed suspicions, brackets, I am certain, at least, if the manner can entitle one to be certain of anything, that he said all this spontaneously, and without any understood motive, and I am certain, too, that he knows you to be a person that it would not do to play tricks of this kind with. I believe, brackets, and all of this would never have entered my thoughts, but that I know it will enter yours, brackets. I believe that even if they thought, brackets, as you have sometimes supposed they do, brackets, that she needs whitewashing, or making an honest woman of, you would be the last person they would think of using for such a purpose, for they know, brackets, as well as I do, brackets, that you couldn't fail to find out the trick in a month, and would turn her into the street the next moment, though she were twenty times your wife, and that, as to the consequences of doing so, you would laugh at them, even if you couldn't escape from them. I shall lose the post if I say more. Believe me, ever truly, your friend, C.P. Letter 13 My dear P., you have saved my life. If I do not keep friends with her now, I deserve to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. She is an angel from heaven, and you cannot pretend that I ever said a word to the contrary. The little rogue must have liked me from the first, or she never could have stood all these hurricanes without slipping her cable. What could she find in me? I have mistook my person all this while, etc. Do you know, I saw a picture, the very pattern of her, the other day at Dalkeith Palace. Brackets, hope, finding fortune in the sea. 
brackets. Just before this blessed news came, and the resemblance drove me almost out of my senses. Such delicacy, such fullness, such perfect softness, such buoyancy, such grace. It is not the very image of her, I am no judge. You have the face to doubt my making the best husband in the world. You might as well doubt it if I were married to one of the Houris of Paradise. She is a saint, an angel, a love. If she deceives me again, she kills me. But I will have such a kiss when I get back as shall last me twenty years. May God bless her for not utterly disowning and destroying me. What an exquisite little creature it is, and how she holds out to the last in her system of consistent contradictions. Since I wrote to you about making a formal proposal, I have had her face constantly before me, looking so like some faultless marble statue, as cold, as fixed, and as graceful as ever statue did. The expression, brackets, nothing was ever like that, brackets, seemed to say, I wish I could love you better than I do, but still I will be yours. No, I'll never believe again that she will not be mine, for I think she was made on purpose for me. If there's anyone else that understands that turn of her head as I do, I'll give her up without a scruple. I have made up my mind to this, never to dream of another woman, while she even thinks it worth her while to refuse to have me. You see, I'm not hard to please after all. Did M know of the intimacy that had subsisted between us? Or did you hint at it? I think it would be a clencher if he did. How ought I to behave when I go back? Advise a fool who had nearly lost a goddess by his folly. The thing was, I could not think it possible that she would ever like me. Her taste is singular, but not the worse for that. I'd rather have her love or liking, brackets, call it what you will, brackets, than empires. I deserve to call her mine, for nothing else can atone for what I've gone through for her. I hope your next letter will not reverse all, and then I shall be happy till I see her. One of the blessed, when I do see her. If she looks like my own beautiful love, I may perhaps write a line when I come to my right wits. Farewell at present, and thank you a thousand times for what you've done for your poor friend. P.S. I like what M. said about her sister much. There are good people in the world. I begin to see it and believe it. Letter the Last Dear P, tomorrow is the decisive day that makes me or mars me. I'll let you know the result by a line added to this. Yet what signifies it, since either way I have little hope there, whence alone my hope cometh. You must know that I am strangely in the dumps at this present writing. My reception with her is doubtful, and my fate is then certain. The hearing of your happiness has... I own made me thoughtful. It's just what I proposed to her to do, to have crossed the Alps with me, to sail on sunny seas, to bask in Italian skies, to have visit, to have visited Vivai, 
and the rocks of Meillery, and to have repeated to her on the spot the story of St. Julia and St. Preux, and to have shown her all that my heart had stored up for her, but on my forehead alone is written, rejected. Yet I too could have adored as fervently and as loved as tenderly as others, had I been permitted. You are going abroad, you say, happy in making happy. Where shall I be? In the grave, I hope, or else in her arms. To me, alas, there is no sweetness out of her sight, and that sweetness has turned to bitterness, I fear, that gentleness to sullen scorn. Still, I hope for the best. If she will but have me, I'll make her love me. And I think her not giving a positive answer looks like it, and also shows that there is no one else. Her holding out to the last also, I think, proves that she was never to have been gained but with honour. She is a strange, almost an inscrutable girl. But if I once win her consent, I shall kill her with kindness. Will you let me have a sight of somebody before you go? I should be most proud. I was in hopes to have got away by the steamboat tomorrow, but owing to the business not coming on till then, I cannot, and may not be in town for another week, unless I come by the mail, which I am strongly tempted to do. In the latter case, I shall be there, and visible on Saturday evening. Will you look in and see? About eight o'clock? I wish much to see you, and her, and J. H. I am a little boy once more. And then, if she is not what she once was to me, I care not if I die that instant. I will conclude here to-morrow, as I am getting into my old melancholy. It's all over, and I am my own man, and yours for ever. End of Letter the Last End of Section C of Liber Amoris or the New Pygmalion by William Hazlitt